Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we're continuing our special summer series on the women of the Hebrew Bible with a look at the story of Moses' sister Miriam, as told in Exodus 2, 1-10 and Numbers 12, 1-16. First, we talk about the story of Miriam as a young girl, saving her brother Moses by convincing the Pharaoh's daughter to hire their own mother as her wet nurse. We talk about Miriam's prophetic foresight and her ability to know what needs to happen to continue the story of God's people, even at such a young age. We discuss the solidarity among women, Miriam, her mother, and the Pharaoh's daughter, that works even across ethnic and political lines to protect life when the men have commanded otherwise. Then we discuss a troubling story in Numbers 12, 1-16, in which Miriam is punished for complaining against Moses while her brother Aaron gets off scot-free. We discuss the way Miriam's forthrightness gets her into trouble here, when she seems to step out of her proper place in a world controlled by men. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am pretty good. I was just thinking, Bobby, about some kind of work of fine art that you look like the person in. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like there's some man in profile who has sort of like, you know, reddish hair and a reddish beard. Yeah. Do you know there what was, I'm talking about? There was a uh, thing that went around on Facebook like yeah. five or six yes, years ago where I was thinking of. you ran your photo through the thing. You know, the one that came up for me was Van Gogh's self-portrait. Yes, that, okay, what actually came into my head was like, Bobby looks like Van Gogh today. And then I was like, Amy, (laughs) what are you talking about? When have you ever seen Van Gogh? Yeah. But that's why I was thinking of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I came out as something else. And then I made like a funny face, like I had to grimace or something like, and then I came out as Van Gogh. (laughs) Like I tried to make myself come out as that painting, but it totally worked. You know, I couldn't have made myself come out as like other kinds of paintings, right? So I'm close enough to Van Gogh. The Mona Lisa. (laughs) <laughs> that would be that would be funny. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Amy, we are making our way through our summer series on the women of the Hebrew Bible. We yeah. talked about Sarai and Hagar mm-hmm. in our first podcast. Last week, we re-released the episode on Tamar from Genesis 38. Mm-hmm. And this week, we are talking about Miriam in a sort of an interesting selection of texts from the book of Exodus chapters two, and we're going to throw in chapter 15 just real briefly, and then numbers 12. I don't know what kind of bridging we need to do in order to get into this Miriam story. Like a lot happens between Tamar and Miriam, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. Are there things that we need to know in order to get us into this Exodus two text? I mean, I think the the general context I would want to offer is that the people Israel, the ancestors, no, not the ancestors, the descendants of Jacob have all gone down to Egypt now. Everything was fine for a while until it wasn't. And so I, this will be a story that is familiar to many people. I'm yes. sure a Pharaoh arises who does not have any relationship with these people and starts making life incredibly difficult for for the people Israel who are living in Egypt. It says they are oppressed and they are forced to do hard labor. And then uh, right before we start this chapter, we learn that Pharaoh has given a decree that every baby boy who is born should be thrown into the Nile, so Mm -hmm. he'll drown. The girls are allowed to live, but this is, uh, I think, an attempt at population control. And I mean, yeah, first and foremost, I would say population control, maybe also reducing the army, like size of fighting, you know, fighting troops or whatever that could be available. But that decree has just been 
passed down. And then we're going to meet a family who's dealing with the aftermath of that. Yes. What else should be in there as, as context? No, I think that covers it really nicely. The Pharaoh is anxious about having a foreign people in his mm-hmm. realm. Yeah, so for a while he was trying to exploit them for labor, and now he's just trying to get rid of all of the male children. And so it's a very dramatic moment into which this story is told. The, the girl Miriam is not mentioned by name in the story, but we're going to hear a story about a young mm. girl who is the sister of Moses. And so far as the biblical text tells us, Miriam is the only sister that Moses had. So we're doing a little bit of sort of creative extrapolation to say that this is a story about Miriam. Do you know? Bobby, I don't think I ever even realized that Miriam's name is not used here. Yeah. Is it in the rabbinic tradition? Do they just, do they associate this, these stories with Miriam? I have never seen them associated with anyone other than Miriam. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have exhaustive knowledge of that literature, but yeah, as far as I know, they had, they associate her, this, this character with Miriam. So this story picks up in Exodus chapter two. We're going to read verses one through 10. So I'll read, I'll start with just two, one to four, and I'm reading in the CEB. Now a man from Levi's household married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that the baby was healthy and beautiful, so she hid him for three months. When she couldn't hide him any longer, she took a reed basket and sealed it up with black tar. She put the child in the basket and set the basket among the reeds at the riverbank. The baby's older sister stood watch nearby to see what would happen to him. So this is the first mention of the older sister who we're taking to be Miriam. This is just back backdrop to the story. The real story starts really in the next verse, but I just wanted to pause there and see what you're thinking about that kind of background, the baby, the hiding, the sister. Mm. What should we be thinking about as we get into this story? I have two different thoughts that came into my head. And one of them is about the sister and one of them is, is really about the mother, I guess. Oh yeah. yeah, That's important. I'm thinking of, Oh gosh, I may, I I don't know if it's a poem. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll know it, but I remember a, a teaching, a learning that I had that, you know, we might imagine that, you know, refugees ought not try to cross the river and come to the States. And it was at, a teaching from someone who had been a refugee themselves and said like, nobody chooses that danger right. happily. You know, yes. nobody chooses that danger unless there is absolutely no other choice. Yes. And so this image of a mother putting her three month old baby in a basket in the uh, reeds along the Nile. And then it seems the mother just leaves I just can't imagine how bad, how bad things were that that seemed like the best option available to us. Yes. Yeah. So hiding, I mean, you know, I have a almost two year old. And so thinking, thinking about that fairly recent experience of for, I could see for three months that you might be able to hide your child away, which is what she has done. But then there just comes a point at which children are no longer hideable and so they're starting to crawl and run around and do things. And so I just can't imagine that. But we're under this decree in which baby boys are supposed to be thrown into the Nile. And so it seems like, you know, if your options are your kid goes crawling out into the street and someone grabs him and throws him in the Nile, or you mm-hmm. yourself can put him in a little boat and set him on the Nile, like that's a bad solution in a world of terrible solutions, at least maybe there's a hope that he's going to. Yeah. It leaves open some possibility, but it's a total giving up of control. Yeah. You know, it reminds me a a tiny bit of our conversation about the Hagar story. When Hagar says like, I can't watch this baby. Well, we don't know if it's a baby, but I can't watch Ishmael die. And so leaves Ishmael under a bush somewhere and, and goes farther away. 
But at least in this case, there's some hope that maybe something else will happen. Yeah. But she's done what she can do. Yeah, I was going to say, it does remind me of that story. But but you're right. In that Hagar story, it did sort of seem like she had given up. Yeah. And she just yeah. couldn't bear to watch. This Here doesn't it seems seem like as, she, mm-hmm. Moses' mother has gone as far as she can go. There's nothing else she can do. And so this is the one shot. Yeah. It's not a very good shot, but it's yeah. what she's got. And so she's what she's got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for the sister, I just, I mean, again, I think I just have the Hagar story still in my mind, but that she doesn't look away from the fear of this. I mean, I imagine this would have been a scary thing for an older sibling to see happen to their yeah. baby brother. But she she makes herself a witness to whatever's going to happen. Like she, you know, tries to look and see if there's anything that she is going to, that she is going to be able to do. Like her mother says, like, I've done everything I can do to put this baby in the basket here. But the sister, I don't know, she keeps herself in the picture a little longer. No, I love that. And and the way the story is going to unfold here in a minute, like she wasn't just watching. She was sort of yeah. watching for an opportunity yeah. that, ar- that arises. But that first movement of just, I'm going to be a witness. I like the way you said that to whatever happens next. I'm going to be a yeah. witness as long as I can. That's really right. And, you know, just, I don't know how old Miriam is meant to be here She's his older sister, but I would, you know, he's only a little tiny baby. So I'm assuming that she's probably quite young, like, I don't know, like four or five or six, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so just that, the bravery of that, both to sort of go out in the world that is a dangerous world for Israelites to be in at this point and be there in public and also to see this sort of tragedy that is likely to happen to your brother. And just to say, I want to be there and see that. It's really kind of a remarkable thing for, yeah. for anybody, but especially for a, a girl, presumably yeah. the age that she is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. So the story continues then in verse five. Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river while her women servants walked along beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent one of her servants to bring it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child. The boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. She said, this must be one of the Hebrews' children. Then the baby's sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, would you like me to go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter agreed, yes, do that. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me, and I'll pay you for your work. So the woman took the child and nursed it. After the child had grown up, she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I pulled him out of the water. Hmm. So I want to come back, of course, to the role of Moses' sister Miriam here, but I just want to start with Pharaoh's daughter. She's such an interesting character and... I don't know, just the the motivations that are here. Like she knows what this decree is about Israelite children. And yet here she is sort of taking compassion on one. Do you have, what do you think about Pharaoh's daughter? I mean, it's such an interesting scene in how overwhelmingly female the whole thing is. Oh my goodness, yes. You know, it's Pharaoh's daughter and her maidens and it's Moses's mother and his sister. And it's, it's almost like every once in a while reading the Hebrew Bible, I get a sense that like, and we've talked about this in different ways. There are these sort of like formal decrees that are made in the public sphere yes. by men. And then there's what happens, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which may or may not be recorded. But here it's like, of course, Pharaoh's daughter knows the decree. And for her to recognize this must be a Hebrew child and then send the child back to the Hebrew community to to nurse and grow up and then come back into her safety, like she is just totally flouting her father's yes. decree. Like just bald-faced, like she has provided the perfect workaround. Yes. By saying like, oh no, that that's my baby. It's just that that Hebrew woman's going to nurse the baby. Yes. Really sort of 
thumbing her nose at the whole system in a very delightful way. Yeah, (laughs) I really love that. And you know, back in chapter one, right before this text, we had the midwives, Shifra and Pua, who were also mm-hmm. sort of subverting Pharaoh's command by saying, oh my goodness, by the time we get there, they've already given birth. And so these first two chapters of Exodus really are very much about women in different roles, the midwives, Pharaoh's daughter, the mother, Miriam, who are all in their own ways subverting the power of, of Pharaoh. Yeah. Now, Miriam, the baby's sister, I don't, like, I'm still picturing her as like five or six, walking up to the Pharaoh's daughter and making this offer. I don't know. Can you just talk about how you read Miriam here? You know, the question of her age is so good. and And I, again, like, it's funny. I just hadn't thought about it too much, I don't think. but. It's like she has a sort of, in some ways, this like delightful naivete about <laughs> who she is and who the Pharaoh is and what's what what kinds of things can happen <laughs> between her and the Pharaoh's daughter. Like it's pretty chutzpah to just, you know, say like, oh, should I, you know, to sort of insert herself in such an active way. But I can see how she can just do it with this air of like curiosity and helpfulness. Like, I heard you say this is a Hebrew child. Should I go get you a Hebrew nurse? Yeah. Now, the question of of whether it had occurred to her or when it occurred to her that this would be a way to bring her brother back to her mother. And I really wish I had been, that scene was depicted in the text. Yeah. I don't know. That, that would be pretty advanced thinking, I think, for a child that age. But, but I don't know, maybe, I don't know. I don't know at what point she realized yeah. how big this opportunity was. Yeah. It's pretty big. And now her mother's getting paid to nurse her own baby. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so that's pretty good. It's so ingenious. That it is absolutely ingenious. And that really was Miriam's idea. I mean, I don't know that Pharaoh's daughter may have saved the baby before, but I don't know that she would have said, Send it, send it back to the Hebrew community to yeah. be nursed and raised. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think of Miriam as totally understanding what was happening and that she saw this opportunity and she, you know, she had sort of positioned herself. I don't think she had imagined that this was how it was going to play yeah. out when she first went to see. Yeah. And so there's something just there about what you were saying about the willingness to witness whatever comes. But then I really, like the way I read her, she just has her wits about her. And as soon as she sees, oh, here's an opening, she's yeah. right on it. Yeah. And I, that might be a little bit uh, optimistic for what a child her age is capable of. But I mean, young children are remarkable. No, it's they're remarkable. And they also, like I have heard n- a number of stories in my life about the attachment of older siblings, especially around that age, to their newborn younger siblings. And it's just, it's a kind of love that is absolutely fearless and naive in the best way. And like, you know, there, there is no reality past their love for this sibling who needs their protection and they get to be the big, you know, and, and yeah, Miriam leans into that hard here. She does. Great. Yeah. I wanted to go back when you were talking about Pharaoh's daughter sort of thumbing her nose at her father. And I'm just curious to what your thoughts are. Like, this is not in the text, but do you think the Pharaoh's daughter knows that the mother that comes is actually Moses's mother? Like, does she, how tuned in is, yeah. is she, do you think, to what is actually happening here? I had not thought about that question so much before. That that seems to be a trope in this episode, Bobby. (laughs) (laughs) I really like the idea that she knows exactly what's happening. And that there really is this sort of parallel universe. And they have to keep on their sort of public face to exist in the public sphere. Yeah. But there's also this sort of other level in which the community of women is looking out for each other. That's the way I like to read it, too. That's how I choose to read it. So 
there's a whole lot that happens, obviously, <laughs> in Exodus between chapter two and Some chapter very exciting things. Fifteen. Yeah. It's probably one of the most important little sections of text in the entire Bible. <laughs> but basically, what has happened at this point that we're going to pick up in Exodus 15, 20 and 21 is after the plagues, the Israelites have escaped from Pharaoh under Moses' leadership. He's all grown up. He's been away to Midian. He's come back and set the people free. Finally, they have made their way across the Red Sea to the other side and escaped from Egypt. And the sea has come back on top of the Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army and destroyed them. When they get to the other side of the sea, Moses sings a song in chapters 15, 1 to 19. And then in chapter 15, verse 20 and 21, we also get Miriam singing a song of victory. And so there's not much to this text. It's just verses 20 and 21. Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand. All the women followed her playing tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang the refrain back to them. Sing to the Lord for an overflowing victory. Horse and rider he threw into the sea. I'm just going to ask you to talk about that. Well, I was, I just recently in the, in the past couple weeks learned a new musical setting of this line, really. Oh, yeah. Miriam, Miriam took her timbrel. And it sort of gave me occasion to like, you know, dive in a little bit to the history that, that like the real archaeological history that we can find of like the role of women in music and drumming in these ancient communities. And then the less sort of archaeological, but equally interesting to me, questions about, you know, they've, they've just escaped with barely their lives running from Egypt. And one of the things Miriam brought with her was a drum. Yeah. Like, was that really the most critical thing to, to bring with you? But yes, the answer to that question is yes. And, and from, I don't know, from me picturing Miriam as this community leader who will stop in these big moments to make music and sing I don't know, it just really sort of raises up for me like the importance of that. Again, like non, in, I shouldn't say non-intellectual. I don't mean to say that Miriam's not an intellectual, but like these other ways of really sort of engaging the 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 grandeur of, of what you've experienced yeah. here. And I feel like Miriam is just like the paradigmatic leader in that in that way. You know, and she's called a prophetess here and there's, some, you know, what what exactly makes her a prophetess? There's mm-hmm. people have different answers to that question. What's your answer to that question? Yeah, what is my answer to that? <laughs> what is my answer to that question? Maybe she foresaw their victory and knew she would need her drum. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems like even just from the last story we're telling, like her her ability to sort of see a little bit around the corner of where things are going yes. and and be able to lead through incredibly uncertain moments because she was able to do that. Yes. I think that can merit the title prophetess. I love that. Yeah, I mean, when you read the Bible as a whole, the term prophet, you know, we read about lots of different prophets. Yeah. But they almost all come later than this. Up until yes. now in the text, I think Miriam might be the only person besides Moses who has had that reference made to them. I, I wouldn't want to stake my reputation on that claim, but I, I think that, I think that's true. And so like, this is not, it's not just like, oh yeah, another one of the prophets. It's like, this is a big status that's given to her right here. Yeah. I love what you're saying about the foresight that she's demonstrated to bring the drum with her. But also reading that back onto the story we were just talking about in Exodus 2, that she really did. It's like she was a witness. She stood in. She saw the possibilities. She spoke what she needed to speak in the moment in ways that move forward the history of Israel. Like without her, there is no Moses. Yeah. Yeah. And there is no Exodus and there is no Israel. And like that, surely that warrants the word prophet. 
there's a there's a midrash that her parents under the sufferings of slavery were were abstinent for a while and that I don't know the details of this but that Miriam basically intervened and was like, yeah, y'all can't do that. Like, <laughs> I don't want to be an only I child. Know. I know. She like, you know, gave yeah. them a little romantic dinner and then went and waited <laughs> in the bushes. Yeah. I'm not sure what, but that, but the rabbis credit her with the fact that Moses is born at all. I love that. And then, you know, of course the fact that he survives. Yeah. I also really like what you're saying about her singing the song here. And, you know, in the biblical text, it is usually women who sing songs. Usually I say, but and I'm thinking about Deborah's song oh, that Deborah, she sings. Yeah. And I'm thinking about mm-hmm. Hannah's song that she sings when Samuel is born. And this is the kind of role that women often play and is the celebration of victories. There is an argument in the scholarly literature that Miriam's song is actually the original and that Moses' mm-hmm. song is an expansion of Miriam's song. The way it's presented in the text is Moses link, leads the Israelites in a song and then Miriam like picks up the chorus and leads the women along too. Yeah. I don't know that it matters, but I, I, to me, it's interesting to think about, you know, it is more usual for women to be the song leaders and maybe Miriam did sing this song and then, then Moses picked up from her and sang or a mm-hmm. later editor like said, oh yeah, really Moses probably should have done this. So I I like to think of Miriam as the, not just the one who leads the women's chorus here, which is an important role of its own, but actually the one who initiates the singing of Israel at the crossing of the sea. Do you think there's anything to that? Does it it matter? You're right. Like there certainly is a pattern across other biblical texts of the women celebrating in this particular way after a victory. And I I wonder too because because it gives her the title prophetess here like I don't know it does it seems like something significant is happening here and the yeah. way that the story reads as it is Moses just sang this really long song right. and then like Miriam who's called the prophetess here just sings these tiny two lines that are basically sort of a repeat of what Moses <laughs> yeah. just sang yeah I mean it does it does seem a little anticlimactic the way that it unfolds in that in the text as the, it is the bible worm collaborative was reading at least some of some of the bible worm collaborative and i and i think i agree with them that this is sort of an instance a biblical instance of men taking credit for women's work that mm. miriam was the creative inspiration here and then somewhere between moses and the editor of the text they said oh yeah this would be more appropriate if it was led by a man and so they sort of attribute that to Moses. I don't know how far you'd want, you, one would want to push that, but I think it is kind of interesting to think about that. Uh, Moses getting credit here, but maybe Miriam is the one who, who really is the, the prophet and the one who is declaring the Lord's glory in this moment. It is, and I'm trying to think of like the, the, the particular moment that they're in. Like they just crossed the sea. Oh yeah. I mean, like you get the impression that it's just like the, the waves have gone shploop back, you know, where they belong yeah. and then they, they break out in song. Yeah. And I can imagine, I don't know, it's just a really pregnant moment. You know, I can, I can imagine people being stunned or afraid or certainly celebratory, but I feel like that's one possibility among yeah. many. And so to lead people in song at that moment, both moves things towards the celebratory, but also like it creates some unity. Like they can all, yeah, you know, they can all be in that moment together. I love that, Amy, because, you know, in the very next chapter is when the people start to say like, eh, maybe we would have been better off if we just stayed in Egypt. Yeah. And so in some ways, like the singing of the celebratory song sets the stage for, we should like, this is a great and wonderful thing that has happened to us. So let's celebrate instead of be, being fearful. Yeah. I like that. And, it, you know, it can't last forever. And so it sort of slips back. But Miriam gives them that sort of moment of yeah. focus on the positive and the celebratory and the, and the power of God. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. We hope you're enjoying our special summer series on women of the Hebrew Bible. 
Amy and I are grateful to you for being part of the Bible Worm listening community. If you're looking for more Bible Worm resources, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There you can sign up to receive early episodes, weekly liturgies, and video Bible studies that go along with the podcast. Or for just $4 a month, you can support our ongoing work and help keep this podcast freely available to the public. Plus, you'll receive a snappy Bible Worm sticker that will make you the envy of all your friends and family. See patreon.com slash Podcast for details. And now, back to this week's episode. All right, our last section of text is down in Numbers chapter 12. There's a lot of text between here and Numbers chapter 12, yeah. like the rest of Exodus and all of Leviticus in the first mm-hmm. half of Numbers. Mm-hmm. But in fact, not a whole lot of time passes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what, what do we need to think about or to know about to get us from we're singing a song having just come across the sea to where we're going to pick up in numbers 12. Yeah. So, you know, they, they cross the sea, they get the 10 commandments, they get a whole lot of other <laughs> legislation that, that legislation sounds so uh, like they're, you know, sitting on the legislative floor, but they, they get a lot of, a lot of rules. They get a covenant they build a gigantic portable Mishkan sanctuary. And then I really, what I, what I sort of picture in this part of the Torah is they're, they're figuring out how to get through daily life as a community who is in the desert wandering again today. Like every yeah. day is like st- still, like we're still just having manna. We're still just (laughs) listening to Moses. We're still just, and so they really numbers is like a lot of fetching. There's a lot of grumbling about everything that's going on. People are unhappy. There are rebellions. No one likes the food anymore. Like they, you know, you sort of like you were running from an enemy. And so that was motivating for a while. And 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 that energy has kind of worn off and now they have to figure out how to how to just be in the day to day and it's it's turns out that's really hard yeah and that's a really important way of framing that you know all of that whole section of the second half of exodus all of leviticus first half of numbers all takes place while they're at sinai receiving the Torah from God. Mm-hmm. And they're there until Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. On the 20th day oh, that's of the really second long month. time. Sorry? That's, I didn't realize they were there all the way until Numbers 10, but you're right. Yeah. You're right. So on the 20th day of the second month in the second year. So they've been out of Egypt for a year and two months. They've been at Sinai, basically. And then they have started to now march into the wilderness. And then, so we're just sort of two chapters into the actual wilderness marching. Mm. We haven't quite gotten yet to the, they get punished for being afraid of the Canaanites. And so they wander for 40 years. We're still sort of hoping that maybe we're headed straight to the land, I think. So it's an interesting moment. You know, they came out of, they came out of Egypt. There was an enemy, like you said, they've spent a year sort of in one spot getting the Torah learning how to be a community, and now they're setting off. And almost immediately, questions about leadership and should we have stayed in Egypt and all of these things start to come up. So in the midst of all that, we get this, I mean, it's a curious little story about about Miriam and Aaron and Moses. And I don't quite know what we're going to do with it, but I'm sort of excited to see what you're going to pull out of it. So picking up in Numbers chapter 12. Verse one, when they were in Hazaroth, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses on account of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. They said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? The Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was humble, more so than anyone on earth. Immediately the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, 
you three go out to the meeting tent. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord descended in a column of cloud, stood at the entrance of the tent and called to Aaron and Miriam. The two of them came forward. He said, listen to my words. If there is a prophet of the Lord among you, I make myself known to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams, but not with my servant Moses. He has proved to be reliable with all my household. I speak with him face to face, visibly, not in riddles. He sees the Lord's form. So why aren't you afraid to criticize my servant Moses? The Lord's anger blazed against them, and they went back. Okay, so Aaron and Miriam, who are the siblings of Moses, here are portrayed as being critical of Moses. It seems to me like for two reasons. Yeah, there's two different things. There's two different things here. There are. It's not at all clear how they're related. Yeah. The first one is he's married a Cushite woman. And then the text says, oh, yeah, by the way, he had married a Cushite woman. <laughs> so let's just start there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thoughts about Moses being married to a Cushite woman and why Miriam and Aaron would be critical about that? I've heard a couple theories. I have a favorite. So Cushite um, is another way to say that he married an Ethiopian woman. Right. So that tells us two things. One is that she is outside of the people of Israel. So maybe that was something of concern to Aaron and Moses. And of course, there already is a tradition of Moses having married a Midianite woman earlier in Exodus. And then a, another uh, potential issue that a lot of modern reader, readers raise is maybe it's maybe it's a racial issue. Maybe her complexion was darker than Miriam and Aaron's and Moses, and and they were gossiping basically about that. So those are those are two things that uh, that I've heard a lot. There's also a midrash that I really like that's a little more in line with the way we were talking about Miriam in an earlier reading, which is that it's not that they were complaining. It's not that they spoke against Moses because of his wife, sort of like against his wife, but rather it says that Miriam had noticed that his wife had stopped wearing jewelry Hmm. and asked her why. And she said, basically your, your brother has stopped marital relations with me. He's so focused on his work as a prophet that we don't oh, have any any romantic relationship anymore. So what's the point? And Miriam's like, that happened to my parents once. And I, and I, I solved the problem dinner. and I could do it again. <laughs> yeah. And 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 so in that Midrash, it's not that she's gossiping. It's more that she's like Moses, like Moses is shirking his responsibilities. Like there is a real responsibility in her understanding to be fruitful and multiply. Like you, you can't just abandon your spouse. And so that, that gives Miriam a more sort of legitimate thing to be talking about. And also what I really like about it is that it it imagines there's this again, world of women where it's like there was a little, like she picked up on subtle cues, subtle changes in her sister-in-law's appearance that other yeah, people yeah. wouldn't have picked up on. And uh, like there's this secret language between women that is invisible to the men, but a signal that something is wrong. And she was able to respond to that distress. Oh, that's a really lovely interpretation. Yeah. It's a lovely interpretation. It's not, I guess, the, the most common interpretation, right? but it's lovely. When you and I studied Midrash together back at Emory, I remember one of the things that we always talked about was, which I understand is just a sort of a traditional Jewish thing to say, is what's troubling Rashi, mm-hmm. which is what is generating this Midrash, right? What What is the problem that mm-hmm. this Midrash is trying to solve? And so that lovely reading that you have generated or have brought to us from the Midrashim, to me, if you push back the question of like, well, but what's motivating that is that Miriam doesn't come across very well in the actual numbers text. Yeah. Yeah. And so, well, that can't be what was happening. And so there must be this other whole thing that's happening. What else could have been happening? Or maybe not necessarily that she doesn't come across well, but that it's not clear what the issue is. And so this Midrash has been generated out of that. 
But I really, well, and I, I think really as the it. story goes on, it does. I mean, she's she winds up being singled out and punished. So yeah. whatever happened was bad. But of course, right. as you pointed out, there are two different things. There's whatever she said regarding the wife, and then there's this whole separate issue. Yeah. About I guess Moses's singular leadership. Yeah. On that question of the Kushite wife, I. Like the most common reading of Kushite is that it's East African, so Ethiopian, maybe modern day Sudan or something like that. Mm. And so that's, he's married somebody in addition to Zipporah, who is a Midianite who he married earlier. There's also a text in Habakkuk 3 that says, I saw the tents of Kushan under duress, the curtains of the land of Midian were quaking. There, Kushan and Midian are being used in parallel. Mm, interesting. And so there are some people who say, oh, no, Kushite here means Midianite. And mm-hmm. it's talking exactly about It's Zipporah. the same. It's the same wife. Got it. So I don't know which is the better way to settle that. But in my mind, the same issues end up in, the, in there either way, because Midian is also not Israelite. And so you end up with Moses married to foreign woman who's exercising some kind of influence on him, whether there's two different women or whether it's all one woman is is a little bit unclear. All right. We've gestured a couple of times to the other issue here. So one is the Cushite woman, but what they actually say is, has the Lord only spoken through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? Mm -hmm. So here, that's not about, at least in any obvious way. Nothing to do with his wife. How do you understand what they're, saying right there i mean let's talk about it is this just sort of like a garden variety jealousy like you know miriam has really been in deep with moses from the very beginning and it is clear at this point after They've had, they've gone, you know, they had the plagues, they crossed the sea, they've been at Sinai, that like Moses is, Moses is really the one. Right. Who is, <laughs> you know, he, he has a special, a special role here. It, I mean, could this just be like sort of disbelief that that's really how things turned out? That like after all that, Miriam and Aaron, you're, you know. It's it's your brother. He's the one. Yeah. It's sort of like it's sort of like Destiny's Child, <laughs> and yeah. like Beyonce is Keep the one. Keep talking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the other two people who I don't even really know their name. Mm-hmm. Do you know their names? They were like support characters, and they're like, "Do you mean this was oh, yeah. really about Beyonce the whole time?" Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure what I think about that. I mean, I think that's what this text is doing. Yeah, I think it is saying that Miriam and Aaron in this instance thought, I mean, they have been speaking. They are called prophets. God has interacted with them. They have been exercising leadership in the community. They're not wrong about any of that. And yet it's it's Moses who is the, who is the one. And I think the question is, is like, is that fair? Like, what about, what about us? And I don't know, like, maybe it is jealousy. I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to entertain the possibility that they have a legitimate complaint here. Mm-hmm. And that Moses is getting all the credit for what has been a team effort. And I want to sort of piggybacking on that and going back to the Midrash that I liked. If we hold on to the idea that Miriam's concern is that Moses is stepping back from all, from other responsibilities because he imagines himself as like the one holy messenger from God. And we've seen Moses before in the, you know, when they're at Sinai and God gives some instructions about what the Israelites are and aren't supposed to do before they receive the Ten Commandments. And Moses adds to those by saying, you shouldn't touch a woman. Like he's, he has... Moses' understanding in the text of the relationship between being close to God and being close to the opposite sex is particular. If we feel like Miriam could have had a legitimate concern in that arena, 
then I think that actually does sort of fit in with the idea of like Moses is not the singular mouthpiece of God and he's Uh setting himself apart from the human community as though, as though he is. Uh I don't know. That's just one way to try to blend those two um, complaints together. No, I like that a lot. I'm going to have to spend a little more time thinking about that, but I think that's an interesting approach to the text. The interpretation that we get here, so first we get from the narrator, Moses was more humble than anyone on earth. Yeah. Then we get from God, Moses is reliable with all my stuff. I speak to him face to face. He saw the Lord's form. So you, you should be afraid to criticize him. So both the narrator and God, as voiced here anyway, come yeah. down on Moses' side here. Yes. Yes. Moses is special and you shouldn't think otherwise. What yes. are your thoughts about those kind of the characteristics of him that set him apart, humble and sees God face to face and sees the Lord's form? I mean, I think it's important to draw out the humility of it because it's a reminder that for me, at least Moses is not trying to claim this space for himself. He actually I think would rather not occupy it. Yeah. But God asserts that like, but he's the only one in this space. Like he is the human with which I speak so plainly and face to face. And he has encountered me in ways that no one else has. And he just, that's just true. Yeah. So it has nothing to do, again, it has sort of nothing to do with the way that things these things might play out in the human realm. It doesn't have to do with ego and pride and fairness and, you know, democracy. This is just how it is. Like, God, <laughs> Moses is in a different category because God put him there. Yeah. I read that line, humble. I, I read that in light of sort of Micah, that kind of humble like do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God is that sort of mm-hmm. yielding to God's direction or like doing the thing that he has asked to do, even if that's that God has asked him to do, even if that's not the thing that he necessarily wants to do. Mm-hmm. And that Moses has like, he's demonstrated in his actions repeatedly with God that he gets the job done and that he doesn't insert himself in unnecessary ways. And I think you're exactly right. Moses several times kind of wishes that he didn't have this, that he didn't have this job anymore. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's exactly the person that you want doing the job is the person who right. wishes somebody else, somebody else could do it. Yeah, that's true. But Bobby is making me think too of, of other stories in the Torah. You know, I was just reading Korach with a bat mitzvah yeah. student, but it's the same kind of thing. It's a couple folks from the congregation who rise up with a critique that on the face of it sounds legitimate. Like they yeah. say, isn't the whole community of Israel holy? Yeah. Why does God only speak through you? And like God opens up the earth and swallows them up. Like God <laughs> yeah. doesn't want to hear that argument at all. Yeah. It is interesting because right before this in chapter 11, the spirit of Moses has been shared among the 70 elders and they have started to prophesy. Yes. And I hear it that God is even acknowledging that there are other prophets that God does speak to them and through them. Yes. But it's a different, so it's It's not that they're not legitimate at all. It's just that they are not Moses. And so you should not confuse the being, you know, having some prophetic insight with being Moses, the prophet. Yeah. Yeah. So God is angry. And then we get the punishment beginning in verse 10. When the cloud went away from over the tent, Miriam suddenly developed a skin disease, flaky like snow. Aaron turned toward Miriam and saw her skin disease. Then Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my master, please don't punish us for the sin that we foolishly committed. Please don't let her be like the stillborn whose flesh is half eaten as it comes out of the mother's womb. So Moses cried to the Lord, God, please heal her. The Lord said to Moses, if her father had spit in her face, would she not be shamed for seven days? 
Let her be shut out of the camp for seven days, and afterwards she will be brought back. So they shut Miriam out of the camp seven days, and the people didn't march until Miriam was brought back. Afterward, the people marched from Hazaroth, and they camped in the Paran Desert. So here God punishes Miriam, in, in particular with a skin disease. So I'm curious what you think about, I mean, just the fact of that punishment and also the fact that Miriam's the only one punished here when in the previous story, it was the two of them who were both being criticized. Only Miriam gets punished. Do you have thoughts about, about that? Okay, so I'll try to answer the second question first, or what yeah. little, I mean, I can't answer it. I don't know the answer to it, but yeah. one thing the rabbis point to is way back at the beginning of chapter 12, when it says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. In the Hebrew, it uses the feminine form of the verb. Yeah. And usually it would default to the masculine. It's a language yeah. that defaults to the masculine in these situations. And so they have have used that, you know, to say like, well, maybe it was really Miriam who was like starting the conversation or like instigating this. And Miriam's name is also given first there too. Yes, and Miriam's name is given Mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. So she's the sort of ringleader of the complaint and therefore she's the one. So that's the rabbinic argument? That's the, yes, that would be the, the rabbinic argument. And you know, it's interesting thinking about her role in the last story and well in the in the first story when she uh goes to sort of see what would happen to Moses but the way that she's sort of she's not afraid to like uh really put herself in the middle of things yeah <laughs> and so in some ways i feel like that that is sort of what's happened here like she is not afraid to speak her mind and voice her concerns and maybe she did start the conversation and yeah this was just one of those situations where there was just a hard, you know, God said, there's a hard stop here. Like we cannot, you cannot (laughs) engage in this. It still feels kind of crappy and unfair that she not only gets the skin disease, but I mean, because maybe because of it, I don't know. I mean, this, this kind of skin disease is the kind of thing that you can't be surrounded by people when you have it. Right. At least, you know, when it comes up in Leviticus, it's like you have to go outside the camp with this because it's understood to be yeah. possibly contagious. It's something bad is happening on your body yeah. and you need to isolate. And I just can sort of imagine both the, the danger of that. I mean, you're being sent outside the camp by yourself in the desert. Yeah. Like that could be a death sentence. You don't have, you know, that's. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I'm interpolating this because then it goes on to say if her father spat in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? But it just seems such like such a shameful. Yeah. Punishment. Like it's, it's on your body and it's visible and it's gross. It's like she got cooties. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. I'm with you there. I, like to me, this seems like a completely unfair punishment. This is one of those places where, I mean, we've said this a lot recently, but I wish God had made different yeah. choices. And I mean, maybe it's important to justify or to support the leadership of your chosen leader. But I mean, Miriam has demonstrated her value time and again in that story when she was five or six in chapter two, and then leading the people in song and at the sea. And so even if whatever she has done here is something that needs to be punished, this seems extreme. And the fact that it is just her and not also Aaron seems gendered and that it's a shameful sort of thing that involves the casting out from the people. Like I, it's, it doesn't sit right with me. I mean, I guess nobody yeah. cares if it sits if it sits right with us, but it doesn't sit right with me. <laughs> I care, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> At all. It is interesting, too, that the people, like it just says that people don't march until she comes back. It doesn't exactly say they refused to march, but I like to read it that way. The people are like, nope, if she's like, Miriam's one of our, one of our leaders, and if she's yeah. not in the camp, there's no way we're marching until she's back. Yeah. 
Now, Aaron first and then Moses. So Aaron intervenes with Moses and then Moses intervenes with God saying, hey, she didn't deserve that. Like, please heal her. Aaron even interestingly says, don't punish us for the sin we committed. (laughs) He was so hard on Aaron when his sister got Poor Aaron. He does kind of make it all about him, doesn't he? Maybe he doesn't <laughs> well, make it all about him. He just includes yeah. himself in it. Yeah. Maybe he thought the same thing was about to happen to him. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I appreciate that Aaron and Moses step up when they need to hear and sort of intervene on Miriam's behalf. But I don't like, so it provides a little bit of a redemption for this part of the story for me. But I don't know. What do you think about that sort of Aaron and then Moses telling God that that she needs healing? I'm not super impressed by Aaron. Yeah. I do feel a little bit more for Moses because she just said some things that were really hurtful to him. Like I, I, I feel like they're at this, they're at a, just at this like tender moment where he could have, he could have gone into the stance of, you know, sort of like you deserve your punishment or even just, I'm going to go to my room and close the door and sort of like lick my wounds. Cause you were so mean to me or whatever, but he, he doesn't, but he offers this very short, like we don't get a long poetic prayer here. We just get sort of right to the point, El Narafanala. Yeah. And this this line is actually often still used in the healing prayers that we offer for people in mm-hmm. synagogue because it just gets right. It, it's this like, it's it's the core of it. Like it's, it's this plea. But I always imagine Moses saying it in sort of a, I don't know, like, like, like imagine that you get in a fight with your sibling when you're young and you're so mad at your sibling and they were terrible, but then they get really harshly punished in a way that is frightening to you. They get hit by a parent or something like that. And like, that's not what you wanted. That's not what you wanted. But, and you feel like sort of responsible because you were the one fighting with them. But you know what I mean? That's sort of, that's how I picture Moses in this moment. I really like that, Amy. And the, like that directness of Moses prayer. Like, I think that's so interesting when God has just said, I talked to Moses face to face, or I think the Hebrew there is actually mouth to mouth. And so they're like the directness of that prayer, like Moses can use that access and he does use that access when it matters in a way that mostly persuades God, although God's still a little bit like, eh, like seven days. Eventually I will. (laughs) (laughs) But Moses kind of does his, his part a little bit there. I I like that too, in light of the Exodus two story where Miriam intervened to save Moses. And now Moses intervenes in a different kind of way, but to save Miriam, there, there feels like a little bit of reciprocity there, but I can't get over just the sense that Miriam I mean, I don't, maybe it's that I don't understand exactly what's at issue in this text. I just like Miriam, I feel like has been nothing but impressive in this text up until now. And then this, this punishment seems a little over the top. Like she got too big for her britches or something like, you know, like I'm a little bit like, oh, come on. Yeah. The rabbis really understand this as like the first case of Lashon Hara, like wicked speech, which is like gossip. But I think as we read it more and it's like really unclear what <laughs> what's happening here. Yeah. I read it more the way you're reading it. Like sort of you stepped out, you stepped out of your specific place. Like you are a leader, but you can't there is a boundary. Yeah. You know, and and you have to step back. Yeah. The other thing that just that your comments making me think about is in in that Exodus 2 text, there was a connection of women across ethnic boundaries, Miriam and Moses' mother and the the Pharaoh's daughter, that were sort of united as women. Mm -hmm. This text starts out with an Israelite woman complaining about another woman, the Cushite woman. And so there's a fracturing of the sort of female solidarity here. 
I don't know where that goes, but it's just an interesting dynamic in this text that that which seems so important in that first text seems to be at issue in a different kind of a way. Yeah. Here. Unless you take the other reading I offered. That's true. But but that is a definitely minority a minority reading. That's true. But I like that one. I'm gonna go. I like it. I like it. But it's (laughs) but it's uh it's not a common reading. Yeah. All right, Amy. Well, as I feel like this whole series that we keep saying is this text stirs up a lot of things that it doesn't entirely put all the way back together, at least for me. Yeah. Especially this combination of texts from Exodus 2 to Numbers 12. So as you're thinking about Miriam, about the series on biblical women, about contemporary life, when you put it together today, what stands out to you from this text? It is so interesting, Bobby, to have these sort of vignettes from different moments in Miriam's life instead of just having, you know, one story that's really focused on her. And I feel like the the character that's sort of coming out of the text for me is this smart and courageous and savvy but not overly political person who's who like I think knows where boundaries are, but is not really afraid of them. And I think here she gets burned because of that. Yeah. Whereas in the first story, if she had been too observant of, you know, social rules and boundaries, she um, maybe never would have been able to bring Moses back home for his early childhood. And that's kind of how those things go. Like, especially when you're a person in, in society who doesn't have a lot of power to start with. You know, sometimes sometimes you can get a lot done by sort of ignoring the official rules of the system, and and sometimes you wind up getting punished for it, and and you just have to be willing to willing to try. I guess I really really like the idea that that there is some way in which the women in these stories kind of see each other, even across cultures. Uh-huh. And communicate with each other in a way that is sort of acknowledges the existence of the the world the men have set up, but also kind of interacts with it in their. I mean, I don't want to say manipulates it because again, that word is has negative connotations that I don't mean to bring in here, but works with it in a way that that tries to move things in the direction they think it needs to go. I think Miriam's scrappy, Bobby. I think I she's too. scrappy. Yeah. I think I think that's my my overarching read of her. And I think that um when I need to tap into that trait, I'm going to think of her more often. I love that, Amy. I, I really love like I just kind of want to stay in the Exodus 2 text because I think that's such a beautiful text. And it, yes, scrappy. Yes, you know, like staying with her little brother just to bear witness, seeing opportunity, being smart enough and brave enough at that young age to say what needs to be said, trusting another woman who was in a position of power over her that the bonds of being women were going to be stronger than the powers of the men's world that were separating them. I love, love, love all of that story. The Numbers 12 story is, I, I mean, the, the only way that I can process it right now is that she scraps, she scraps her way into the men's world mm. and the men's world does not appreciate that. And so like in the first text, it was the women were all the characters and it kind of worked out. But here she's kind of, she's trying to assert her authority in the world of Aaron and in the world of Moses and in the world of God. And she gets, in my view, overly punished for it. And I think that just speaks a word of truth about how that often goes. Not not that that should be the way that that goes, but that that often is the way that it goes. And that women who are scrappy or women who are assertive often do bear more repercussions than somebody like Aaron who gets off scot-free right here 
for no apparent reason. (laughs) Aaron gets away with so much in the Torah. He really, I mean, he's the golden calf guy. Yeah. Come on, Aaron. (laughs) That's right. He did a golden calf. (laughs) She was like, "Uh, excuse me, like I've done some stuff too. (laughs) Leprosy. Yeah. The only thing that I, so there's two things that I find redeeming in this Numbers 12. One was the insight from the Bible Room Collaborative. It might've been from our liturgist, Terry, actually. I think it was that the people here at least can be read as being in solidarity with women, mm-hmm. with Miriam. Like they know what's up and they're not mm-hmm. going anywhere mm-hmm. until Miriam is restored. I think that's a really nice reading that even, mm-hmm. even if the power structures don't recognize the people know. The other is what we were saying before about Moses, when he has the opportunity, uses his position of privilege as God's chosen one to speak directly and clearly on her behalf. I don't know that that is sufficient as sort of a redeeming reading of that text, but it it does say something to me about Moses and his exercise of authority that he's will that he's willing to do that, as you were saying, even though he could very well have some feelings of hurt mm-hmm. and anger. In, in this moment in the text. That's what I've got, I think, for this, for this reading. Yeah, it's, it, there, it's an interesting collection of texts. They are complicated. <laughs> I feel like we're saying that a lot in this series. I know, series. I was like, that's the, that's the actual <laughs> subtitle of this yeah, series. This is called Women, Women in the, in the Bible. Bible. It's, it's a complicated story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, next week, we're going to stay in the book of Numbers, which I think is maybe the longest time we've ever spent in the book of Numbers. Have we ever even been in the book of Numbers before? Uh, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look. But we're going to be in Numbers again for the second week next time, talking about the daughters of Zelophehad in Numbers 27 and then in Numbers 36. I named my daughter after one of the daughters of Tzalafahad. I know how you did. I love it so much. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that story. Yeah. Me too. All right. I'll see you next time. See you then. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Join us next time when we'll continue our summer series on the women of the Hebrew Bible with the story of the daughters of Zelophehad as told in Numbers 27, 1-11 and 36, 1-12. Until then, keep on digging.